0: and welcome to the ONTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the ONTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Don Cray polygraph career started in the private sector in 1979, conducting testing for attorneys, police departments, and commercial firms in St. Louis, Missouri. In 1985, Don was recruited by the U.S. government to perform polygraph testing for intelligence and security purposes, and he conducted many significant and highly sensitive cases during that time. Don's work led to, among other advances, an algorithm now used on most computer polygraphs. His expansive terminology reference for polygraphy is the standard in the field. Following six years of very productive research, he was named the Deputy Director for the National Center for Credibility Assessment. Don retired from the government service in 2015 and now works as the Director of Education for the Capital Center for Credibility Assessment, the largest provider of contract polygraph services to the U.S. federal government. In his career, he has authored more than 100 published research papers, general interest pieces, technical articles and book chapters on credibility assessment in related areas, and has been the recipient of numerous awards for his research and presentations. Don, welcome to the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation, Fred.
0: Oh, it's our pleasure. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Tell me a little bit about the history of the polygraph.
1: So the history of polygraph is uh, somewhat zigzag. It actually began with development of recording devices for physiology going back to the 1800s. They're used mostly for medical purposes. But uh, about the early part of the 1900s, about 1908, there was a Harvard psychologist by the name of Hugo Munsterberg, who was, for those who involved in the forensic sciences will recognize, he's actually credited with being the father of forensic science. He wrote a book about uh, On the Witness Stand, in which he identified physiological data channels that might be used for detecting deception. That was in 1908. Uh, a few years later, in 1920, the Berkeley Police Department out in California hired a doctoral candidate to be a police officer, Dr. John Larson, who was familiar with uh, psychology and physiology in was given permission to do some experiments based on uh, Hugo Munsterberg's initial proposal. So in 1921, and by pure happenstance, 100 years ago, on April the 19th of 1921, he did his very first criminal test of record that we can find. That's Investigating a series of thefts from the dormitory on the campus of the University of Southern California in Berkeley, and then found who the guilty suspect was. So in a few years later, the data channels that he was using, which was actually just laboratory apparatuses assembled together, uh, there was a guy by the name of Leonard Keeler who actually took those physiological channels and signals and sensors and put it into a single box. And by the early 1930s, they were calling it uh, a lie detector. The press was calling it a lie detector. The polygraph people never did. and. Uh, its popularity began to grow because it was solving a lot of crimes that heretofore police was having having a very difficult time solving. Uh, jump forward a few years in the 1940s, late, uh, mid-1940s, the U.S. government hired Leonard Keeler and a crew of now polygraph examiners, as they were called, to do screening of German prisoners of war, POWs, to find candidates who would be used to... Man, police forces and bureaucratic offices and so forth when World War II was over. And a few years later, the Department of Energy in the late 1940s was using polygraph to screen at places like Oak Ridge Laboratories to identify potential spies. Interestingly, the, one of the test topics that they had had to do with the theft of tools. And when the word got around that uh, there were polygraph testing and one of the questions was the theft of tools, So many tools were returned to the inventory that they couldn't actually account for them all. There was an outbreak of honesty going on. (laughs) So the polygraph has continued to grow since that time. In the U.S. government, there are currently about 20 federal polygraph programs. There are roughly 1,000 federally certified polygraph examiners serving in a variety of missions, including counterintelligence, counter-narcotics, counterinsurgency, criminal investigation, a whole host of uh, topics. Special missions that they have. The U.S. government polygraph school was stood up in 1951. That's at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And here in the year 2021 means that that school is now 70 years old. Its name is the National Center for Credibility Assessment. It's gone through a few different names in the in the past 70 years. But that's where all government polygraph examiners go. And it is the heart and soul of polygraph research in the United States.
0: That's an amazing history. And I think that most people's perception of the polygraph is something that they will either get from movies or TVs, TV shows and so forth for anybody that's never seen a polygraph in operation or have been polygraphed uh, themselves. In thinking through this, Don, what is your assessment of the reliability of a polygraph?
1: Yeah, so if your only source is movies and TV, either the polygraph, the real polygraph is neither as bad nor as good as the media would have us believe. If one looks at the research that's been done uh, and the summaries of research, it points to at least in criminal investigations of a, a specific event like a bank robbery or a shooting or so forth decisions of truthfulness and deception are accurate somewhere between maybe the mid-80s to the low 90s at the top end. Uh, If you have some of the better techniques and better circumstances, you can probably perform at the high end. If you have some of the lesser valid techniques, you're going to be at the lower end of that. Now, that said, most of what the U.S. government does is not criminal testing, it's screening multiple-issue screening to find out whether people are spies or uh, saboteurs or any range of security kinds of issues that that national leaders worry about all the time and for the insider threat. And the polygraph in the screening mode, its accuracy is expected to be lower than that in criminal testing, but there's not enough research to actually pinpoint where that accuracy might be.
0: That's most interesting. Now, I know from my days of being a counterterrorism agent that the polygraph was very, very useful to us in vetting threats, vetting individuals that come forth with information. How helpful in your assessment is the polygraph in vetting threats?
1: Actually, as you might predict, since I work in the field of polygraph, I'm quite encouraged by how it performs. What I would like to do is put it on a relative scale. Let's suppose that in the screening mode that the polygraph is 80% accurate. That's probably a good estimate, but I could be corrected when new research data comes in. So let's say 80%. Let's suppose people say, well, that's not good enough. 80%, that's a 20% error rate. We need to abandon the polygraph. Well, as it turns out, if you don't use the polygraph, if you're just relying on, say, interviewing people, the ability to detect deception in individuals just by, say, interviewing is maybe at the top end 60%. So if you think 80% is not good, we need to get rid of the polygraph, you're left with virtually nothing to replace it. So the challenge has always been in the field of polygraph is you don't want to over-rely on it. You don't want to have it make all of your decisions for you. That's a bit foolhardy. You, You wouldn't want to ignore countervailing evidence. On the other hand, if you think polygraph is all bad and you don't use it, you're giving up a valuable resource that in most cases is actually going to put you ahead of the game.
0: We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Antec's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the Antec Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co/center that's ontic.co/center don how has technology enhanced the polygraph or better put has technology enhanced the polygraph from where it first started
1: well, as you might expect from in 100 years of development, a lot of things have happened. In more recent times, polygraphs have been computerized. I, I happen to be of the generation back when we used polygraphs or with a pen and ink system that you typically see on TV. They, they use them on TV because they're a lot more exciting than the computer terminals that we use today. But one, a few of the advantages of the computerized instrumentation is that we have a variety of algorithms that can help us analyze the data a capability that we didn't have even 30 years ago. It also allows us to transmit our cases for instant quality assurance or quality control reviews from anywhere in the world. Quality control turns out to be one of the great advances in our field, having an independent person assess our data. We can also display the data in new ways that help us identify patterns of deception. We also have a capability of having the giving the computer a little bit more responsibility and have the computer... Pose the test questions during the test itself to get rid of things like voice inflections or emphasis or accents or mispronunciations and so forth. So the technology has incrementally uh, allowed us to perform better than we had before we had uh, the computerized instrumentation.
0: Don, what is the biggest misunderstanding of the polygraph?
1: I guess the biggest one is the obvious one is calling it a lie detector. <laughs> There's no such thing. Nobody's ever invented one, and nobody can invent one, because if you think of it, lying is actually a social construct. It's not something that you can hold in your hand or shine light through it or weigh it or find out how much it floats. It's it's actually a a behavior, and the behavior uh, is simply this. When a person is communicating something to you, is what they're communicating to you different from their internal representation of what really happened. So there's a mismatch between what's going on in the brain and then how they're conveying that to you. So there is no device that allows us to, to find that difference. Polygraph is no more a lie detector than an x-ray is a broken bone detector. They're just, you have to follow certain test protocols, you have to evaluate the data in validated ways, but when it's all over with, you can make some pretty reliable inferences whether a person's being truthful or not. In terms of other misrepresentations, there is an issue of whether polygraph is admissible in court or not. We, we hear that quite frequently. It can't be any good because it's inadmissible. When, in fact, most states in the union, if the polygraph is admissible if there's stipulation between prosecution and defense. So it's a conditional admissibility. There are only a couple, a few states that bar it pro se, that is, on its own, they bar polygraph evidence. And there's only one state that allows polygraph evidence in any case where the the examination was competently conducted. Uh, and other strange uh, notions about the polygraph is that it detects guilty feelings. So people say, I, I feel guilty about this. I can't take a polygraph test. I wasn't involved, but I feel somehow responsible. The polygraph doesn't detect guilt. It's not designed to detect guilty feelings, which is one of the reasons why when we run polygraph tests, we don't worry about what people refer to as the pathological liar or what a psychologist might refer to as a psychopath. People who don't have feelings of guilt as the normal people do doesn't rely on that. In fact, if one were to look at the research literature done with uh, prisoners, psychopathic prisoners and non-psychopathic prisoners. It turns out the detection rate of deception is identical for both groups. So this idea that we can't test psychopaths is another polygraph myth It's in the popular lore.
0: Don, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say?
1: I would like to say a few words about alternate technologies beyond the polygraph. Most people think of the polygraph as being the mainstay mainstay technology for deception detection. And currently it is, but it, um, polygraph having been around for 100 years, one might expect that some new device or technology is going to come along. There are a handful of technologies that have been looked at in research labs, including U.S. government's labs. Some of them showing promise. Other ones are not so. Uh, one of the big hopes of everyone was that since lying happens in the brain, maybe we can use some of these new fancy brain imaging technologies like the fMRI or something called the functional near-infrared spectroscopy uh, device that actually looks at blood flow in the brain. And there's a lot of research that is being done with that technology, and there's some hope that maybe in 20 years, with lots of money, it may turn out to be a really good technology for deception detection. But right now, it's the state of the technology is not such that we can use it. There are too many individual differences in cognitive processes to make reliable inferences about deception. There's a lot of research there on the use of voice, There's several technologies, commercial technologies out there that one can buy, great advertising. The challenge for the voice stress people, the voice analysis people, is that all of the independent research shows that its accuracy is really pretty abysmal. It may be good for inducing confessions from people, and that's I wouldn't dismiss that out of hand. That can be very useful in some circumstances, but if you want to make decisions whether the statements a person has given or is true or false, voice stress is probably not something you're going to have a lot of confidence in. There is also a, an eye-based technology that is showing a lot of promise. It's called uh, I Detect. That's the, the commercial name, the scientific expression for it is the ocular motor deception test. And it's based on the behavior of the eye while the person reads statements on a computer screen. It monitors what are called saccadic eye movements where your eye jumps from place to place. It sees how long you fixate on particular points in a statement. It looks at pupillary response. It looks at reaction time. It looks at a lot of variables. And all of the published research that I've read on that suggests that It is actually quite promising. It is the most mature of the candidate technologies I've seen so far. And then in terms of a standoff technology, there's thermal imaging, which everyone was excited about about 15 or 20 years ago. It turns out that it might be useful as an add-on channel to the polygraph, perhaps, but as a standalone system, there's probably not enough useful data in thermal imaging alone to use it for credibility assessment, except for under some extraordinary circumstances. And That pretty much covers the, the possible candidates that we can see in the literature right now.
0: That's uh, fascinating information, Don. We really, really appreciate uh, you sharing your expertise on the OnTIC Protective Intelligence podcast, and it's a pleasure to have you on as our guest.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you, Fred.
0: This episode was brought to you by the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at slash Center. Again, that's ontic.co. Center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.